Welcome to our Year of Faith discussion series presented by the Most Reverend Richard Lennon, Bishop of the Cleveland Catholic Diocese. This series is presented in concert with Pope Benedict's request that there be opportunities for the faithful to deepen their appreciation and their knowledge of church teaching. From St. John Cathedral in downtown Cleveland, Bishop Lennon speaks to the documents of Vatican II as they pertain to divine revelation. Well, thanks for coming back. <laughs> nice to see you all. As we know, you know we met a couple of weeks ago, and we uh, began to talk about the uh, dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And I just want to say a couple of sentences to sort of, um, you know, to recap what we said, and then to move on to the rest of the document here in the time that we have this afternoon. I think it's very important that uh, the church is teaching that, first of all, God revealed himself. God wanted to share his life with creation, and especially with mankind throughout the ages. God chose two ways to do it. We talked about sacred scripture, and we also talked about tradition. And those two are two sources from which God has revealed himself. And the last point is that in that revealing of himself, having shared so much about his love for us, his care for us, his trying to guide us along the way, that in a very significant way the church teaches that the teaching authority of the church is intimately related to both scripture and tradition. That paragraph number 10 in that document is very, very crucial. Now, all Christians would not have the same view of who interprets the revelation of God. As we know, um, many of the non-Catholic denominations would say that each individual has that responsibility. Some would say it's the local community. So, for example, and I'm just using this as an example, a UCC church in one city or town would have a different interpretation than another. I'm not here saying, you know, that they're wrong or whatever. I'm just saying as Catholics, and that's what we're talking about, the Second Vatican Council taught that it is the church. When... Uh, when Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And when St. Paul wrote the letter to Timothy and said, the church is the bulwark and pillar of truth. That's our faith. So, say, having said that, I'd like to move on now to the rest of the document. Remember, we'll have some time at the end. If anyone wants to make any questions or comments about what we did a couple of weeks ago, that's fine, or about today's uh, time that we uh, spend together. But uh, so that I can continue on with the, uh, you know, the document. The church teaches that by the Holy Spirit, that revelation is inspired by God, that divine inspiration utilizing human authors is how scripture 
came about. That's something that we've heard. Now, how those two things interact, that is something that is a mystery. It's not like someone sits there and God gives them the words and then they write them down. But the person is guided by God. Because we say that what is in Revelation is God's word. It's not the word of Moses. It's not the word of Isaiah. It's not the word of Paul. No, it's God's word. So that we implicitly and explicitly say that, you know, that the scriptures are a book unlike any other. Why? Because God is its author. We can have very smart people writing books, but it's not the writings of God. And I think that's a very important point because oftentimes today, people want to pick and choose. You know, parts of the Bible that they sort of like, it fits where they're at in life. Oh, they will make that absolute. But other parts of Scripture, oh, well, no, they didn't mean that. You know, so we have to be very careful. What do we believe? Now, the 72 books in the Bible, there are 72 books. When you open that book with the, you know, with the uh, covers, inside there are 72 different books. 45 are in the Old Testament and 27 are in the New Testament. And with all of the, all of God's inspiration and using human authors, there are different styles of writing. They're not all the same. We have history books. You know, the books of kings, for example. Or sort of a history book would be the Acts of the Apostles. There are books of, of meditative prayer, like the Psalms. You know, which we use at every Mass. And they're beautiful psalms that talk about joy. They talk about sorrow. They talk about needing God's help. They, you know, it expresses all of the feelings and emotions of, of human beings. We also have books that are, are prophets. And you know, somehow we have in our mind that prophets Prophets are someone who's going to tell you what's going to happen five years from now. Oh, that's not true. Pick up any of the prophets, and they're talking about what God has said years ago, and you people haven't lived it. Go back and live it so that you're in communion with God. Prophets are dealing with what God has already revealed, and people are doing not a good job. And so in turn, the prophet is sent to call them back. Remember Jonah? Jonah's sent to, you know, to tell the message that in that city, Nineveh, you really weren't doing what God wanted. He knew he was going to be punished. He knew he may even die, so he ran away. He was calling them back to what God had revealed. And finally he had the courage and he went and did what he did. Jeremiah feared for his life. He wasn't saying what's going to happen 20 years from now. He was talking about what you haven't done. 
somehow the modern world has this idea of prophet as being someone who, who can tell you what's going to happen next week. Prophet isn't that at all. It's a reforming act. So anyway, that's another set of books. And then, of course, we have that group of books in the Bible that are preeminent. And that's the four Gospels. Because they actually tell the story of Jesus Christ. Directly, explicitly, formally. All those other books, though, the ones in the Old Testament, are preparing people to receive him. Those books are not unrelated. I know at times we hear the words Hebrew scriptures, the first 45 books in the Bible. That's the way Jewish people read them. I respect that. That's their faith. But for us, it's not an unconnected story. Those 45 books are preparing people for the coming of the Savior and to be ready to accept him and to follow him. So we look at it not as Hebrew scriptures. They are part of the revelation of God, which is in two parts, Old Testament and New Testament, and they're related and with the person of Christ in the middle. The Old Testament brings us up to his birth, and the New Testament tells his story, and then the story of the early church. Sometimes it's good to have a picture. When we have a picture, then we see when we come to Mass on Sunday, except for during Easter, when we come to Mass on Sunday, the first readings are always from the Old Testament, preparing for the Lord. At the end of the Liturgy of the Word is the Gospel, but before that, the second reading is about how the early church was living it. So when we hear this Sunday after Sunday, there's a formality and an exposure of how we see the gospel in relationship to the Old Testament, which leads up to it, and the New Testament reading, which takes it to the next level. This document, along with the document on sacred liturgy, highlighted and brought forth in a more prominent way scripture in our lives. For example, when I was a boy, every year we repeated the readings for Sunday Masses. You heard about you cannot uh, follow God and mammon, and every Sunday, uh, you know, that time it was in August, that that uh, you know, gospel was read every Sunday. It was a very limited exposure to the Bible with the church's teaching on divine revelation, that this is not just something else, it's, some, it's God, God's communicating with us, and from the Constitution and the liturgy, that now the readings, what you heard last Sunday, you won't hear for three more years. Because next year will be a whole different set of readings every Sunday. And the year after that will be another cycle. Also, for weekdays, what you heard today at Mass, you won't hear for two more years. 
because there's another whole cycle. So that alone, from the Second Vatican Council and in the documents on divine revelation and on the liturgy, have enriched our lives tremendously. We are exposed more and more to what God is teaching us, what God has taught people before us and us and those who will come after us. That's a very, very significant part of our Catholic life, being exposed to God's teaching. Also, in this document, we have it very strongly put together that, in fact, that the Church is constantly making the Bible more and more um, part of people's lives, for example, in prayer services, in the encouragement of people to pray the liturgy the hours back a couple weeks ago here at the cathedral for the feast of St. John the Evangelist, our patron saint. That night we had the divine office from the Bible sung here in church. The church is looking for us to be more and more aware of the Bible and in touch with its teaching. Oftentimes we hear that Catholics aren't supposed to read the Bible. That's, I mean, there could be nothing false, you know, more false than that. The church encourages that in this, uh, you know, particular document and has for years. The church does say that any official interpretation, it's up to the church, yes, but does not say that Catholics can't read the Bible. Another important point is the whole matter of the place of the Bible in the life and the work of teachers. We know there are many teachers, and some teachers, and, and, and they can be talking about the same subject. And boy, they come out with different ideas, pretty different on some basic things. This document highlights that the scripture has to be at the very foundation of the work of any theologian. I mention that because there are different opinions, and we need to familiarize ourselves what role does Scripture have in the writings of so-and-so, whoever that is. You know, I mean, are there you know, references, are there foundation points that are really based on the word of God? Or is this someone who's writing about their thoughts only? Very good friend of mine who's a, a theologian. Uh, he just wrote a major article in a, you know, in a scholarly, um, you know, journal. The place of scripture in the writings of Thomas Aquinas. Again, underscoring that Scripture is part and parcel of our prayer life, our intellectual life as Catholics, our prayer life, and all comes together because Scripture and tradition is revelation in our midst, what God is inviting us to do and how to do it. If you have a chance... It's a pretty small little pamphlet. It's a very small, you know, um, 
know, document. And yet, it's so fundamental because it talks about what is at the core of our life if we say we're followers of Christ. If we profess faith, as we do every Sunday, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where do we learn about them? In Scripture. It's in Scripture that we learn about them. You're listening to our Year of Faith discussion series featuring the documents of the Second Vatican Council. This series is presented by the Bishop of Cleveland, the Most Reverend Richard Lennon. Our program now continues with the question and answer portion. Years ago, women were to wear something over their head, and that has sort of gone by the wayside. And um, and not only that, but um, coming to church today is a much more casual approach where people don't get into their Sunday best. What has happened and how do we address that, you know, is in substance, I think, what you're asking, right? Um, first, I mean, first of all, there is a place in the New Testament where St. Paul says women are to keep their head uh, covered. You know, I, I mean, certainly, yeah, he wrote it. Um, it got into church law in, um, in 1914 and, uh, uh 1918. And, um, the new law that came out in, um, 1983 that was taken out. You know, it just, you know, but it already had fell, fallen into disuse just from lack of, you know, you know, uh, seeing whatever it was, you know, the value of it. I think part of what, you know, you're seeing at church is because our society has become much more casual. You know, I mean, you know, you, you know, I mean, the place where I see it, you know, when I first started to go on airplanes, God, people dressed up. Now, it's, I mean, it's dungarees, it's everything else. Now, I'm not making a moral statement. I'm just saying, I think when you get on an airplane, you see the change over 40 or 50 years. It is drastic. It is really drastic. I, you know, now, the specialness. Now, you know, there are times, I mean, nobody would go to a prom, a high school prom, wearing dungarees. You know, so, you know, to some extent, there are special moments. The sad thing is, the special moments become rarer and rarer. And you're right, it's pretty casual. And yet, you know, um, uh, on the Feast of Corpus Christi, I uh, have Mass here on Saturday afternoon at 4.30, and little boys and girls who have made their first communion, they come for the Mass. And I usually call them up around the altar, and I have the sermon for them, of course, they don't quite get it that my microphone, everyone else is hearing, but that's another story. And so I asked them, what, you know, going to church and all is very special, especially receiving Holy Communion. Can anyone tell me what you do? One little girl, I mean, she was a doll. She said, well, we have lunch. You know, we go on Saturday. We have lunch, and then there's no playing. We get our baths, and we get our clean clothes, and we get in the car. No fighting on the way to church when you're going to church. No fighting. And, 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 and everything is just perfect for Jesus. 
Now, she was being brought up in a family where, you know, you just didn't stop, you know, raking the leaves and getting the car to go. I mean, you know, at their home, there was a little ritual, and she shared it for all of us. So to some extent, you know, it, you know, it's, it, you know, I mean, it's not the kids. You know, it's the casualness that has permeated all of our society. You know, and I mean, like, you know, we have a, you know, a, uh, you know, a policy, you know, when a person is lecturing or, um, you know, an extraordinary minister, how they're to, you know, dress. Um, you know, I mean, should we be saying more? In Europe, they do it because uh, of the, you know, so many people are tourists. And that's why they have tried to hold that back because, you know, it's even more, um, more of an issue there than it would be here. And you might say, well, I mean, that's hard to believe, but, you know, like to try to get into St. Peter's in Rome. I mean, a lot of people have turned away. You know, uh, let me, you know, I mean, thank you for your intervention. Um, The church had never had an experience like the Second Vatican Council. And I say that in many, many senses. First of all, it was truly a giant event. And with modern communications, people were getting information instantly. But there was no one there to interpret it. If you take the prior 20 councils and you take all that they wrote, there was more in the Second Vatican Council. So the sheer volume of what they tried to wrap their arms around was, you know, enormous. They tried... I mean, people were enthusiastic in the 60s. People wanted it to be implemented. And you're right, it was not implemented well. It was too big to be implemented well. You don't have enough knowledgeable people to carry the ball. You really didn't. I mean, you'd go to Mass on Sunday and the priest would be up there, we're going to do something different today. We got the letter from Chancery. So look at your St. Joseph Missal, turn to this page, and that's what we're going to do today that we didn't do yesterday. I mean, really, it, it was beyond handling. So it took some time for that, to, you know, to get, um, you know, kind of straightened out. Also, the time before Vatican II, you know, for many folk, was a church that was pretty formal and rigid. And Vatican II, you know, really, when you look at it, it isn't wild, but it opened up some other opportunities. And so, therefore, whenever you have a shift historically, you go from one extreme to another. And the example that you use, you know, with religious education is very much true that now it's being recaptured because to a large extent from the church's point of view is the catechism of the Catholic Church. 
when that was suggested in 1985, and then the book, the book was abs- uh, you know, actually promulgated in, uh, in 1992, it gave a benchmark. This is what the Catholic Church teaches. Period. Over and done. And that became, see, when they did that, that was not, you know, they didn't expect you to read it. You know, they didn't, now, I mean, it's good that people have read, you know, reading it, but that wasn't the audience for which they, for which they did it. The audience was for bishops who would then evaluate catechisms as to their suitability to be used with children and adults. That's what it was all about. They've only done two catechisms in the history of the church. Rome's only done two. One was in 1570, and one was in our lifetime. They become the foundational work upon which catechisms that are going to be in the parishes have to be in conformity with. And so here in the United States, you know, you know, bishops and priests were assembled and they read what sadly are put out and they critiqued it and you had to write it again. I was one of the priests that was called forth in the 90s to be one of the reviewers of catechisms and they were rewritten because the bishops made a commitment that only catechisms that were judged in conformity with the catechism of the Catholic Church would be used in the United States. So once you put that out there, then they had to change their books to be in harmony with what the Catholic Church teaches. It was a gigantic job. You know, I mean, if you can imagine, you get, you know, a grammar school series, one through eight. So you get the eight books, and you get the eight workbooks, and you get the eight teacher manuals, and when you come up for a little air after three and a half months of reading all this, then you send in your multi-page critique, and there were groups of five, you know, bishops and priests who worked together. You know, so, I mean, the church, it took them a time to, you know, to get around to it, but they needed the catechism. Because the last one was in 1570. You've been listening to a discussion of the documents of the Second Vatican Council as part of the Year of Faith series presented by the Most Reverend Richard Lennon, Bishop of the Diocese of Cleveland. This series is in concert with Pope Benedict's request that there be opportunities for the faithful to deepen their appreciation and their knowledge of church teaching during this special Year of Faith. More information can be found on our website at dioceseofcleveland.org. Thank you for listening.